grace to you and peace from God our Father, from our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit who comforts us in the name of Jesus. Amen. Here uh, again, just a portion of our epistle lesson today, as it says, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So far our text. And so, in our epistle lesson today, we are given a picture of the two great doctrines of the Bible. Law and gospel, right? Whatever you read in the Bible, you will see law and gospel at work. Wherever you go, whatever section you go in, you're either going to have God giving a commandment that tells you what you must do, or you'll have God proclaiming a promise that teaches you what to believe. And since we're sinners, that word of law that commands us kills us. And it kills us because it accuses us. It points out our sin. It shines a light on how we have fallen short of the will and the glory of God. And we're forced to see our weakness and rebellion against God. But even as that law kills us, it assaults us, it points out our sin, that gospel promise makes us alive again. Because here, God proclaims forgiveness for sinners. He reconciles us to himself by taking our sin away from us. So you have, you have law and gospel. And that's a matter of life and death. And so as we read the scriptures, understanding law and gospel, that's a matter of utmost importance so that we understand the distinction between the two. Because when we confuse them, well, we can potentially make a shipwreck of our Christian faith. See, most false teaching flows from a confusion of law and gospel. People think that, we learn, uh, that the law earns us grace and favor from God, or that they think the gospel is something that you have to do, right? So people think that salvation comes from human obedience or, or some sort of activity that we do on behalf of God. And so we hear things like this a lot. In American Christianity Today. So we hear Christians uh, say things like, well, I'm saved. But when we hear those words, I am saved, not everybody means the same thing. Some people think of being saved simply as believing that Jesus, uh, we think at least, uh, gee, when we say I am saved, that Jesus has forgiven all of my sins, right? Just as he promised to do, just as the gospel declares, when I say I'm saved, it's I am saved forgiven. I know Jesus. But others believe that being saved means that they have an emotional experience where they feel the presence of the Holy Spirit, where maybe other people think that that definition of being saved means that they have quit sinning in a certain way and have handed that part of their life over to God. Others believe that being saved does not mean that they do not have to be baptized, hear the word of God, or go to church but that they simply need to leave a good life. Others believe that being saved means that they've reached an age of accountability, 
decided to make Jesus the Lord of their life and ratified it by saying a sinner's prayer. While still others believe that being saved means that they swear fealty to the church Catholic and will live in obedience to the church's teaching, whatever they may be. And while many others might say that they cannot be certain whether or not they're saved, because they have not done enough yet to claim that salvation. You see what a confusion of law and gospel can do to us, where it can take the work of our salvation out from the hands of Jesus, out from the promises of God, and place it right back into our laps. And so whenever we confuse law and gospel, some aspect of life, salvation, it becomes dependent on you. Salvation before God becomes something murky. It becomes uncertain, unclear. And it begins to rest on something that we do, something we say, something we think, something we assent to. And we create some sort of formula that tells us that we did this, so God must do this. I did this good thing, so God must reward it for me. I went through this step and this process, so God has to do what I tell him to do. And here is where the problem arises. God is not bound by our actions. God is not bound by our decisions. God is not bound by our way of thinking. God does not make his work of grace contingent on frail and fallen human devices. I mean, God binds himself to one thing. He binds himself to his promise. Whenever we think we receive anything good from God, apart from his promise, we begin to spiral into false doctrine, uncertainty, and despair. And this is where we often begin to stumble, is when we think some aspect of our salvation before God depends on us. We say, hey, yeah, we believe the gospel, but often our thoughts and our actions, they challenge what we say we believe. And pride comes in and it starts to puff us up. We, we look at the righteous deeds that we do and we think, man, God must be happy with me. Then we look at our neighbors and we see that they're struggling. And with those things that I'm quite good at, my neighbor seems to stumble and fall a lot with. And we think, man, are they even Christians? Huh? Look at them. How could you struggle with something so simple? How could you struggle with that simple aspect of my Christian life, of my Christian faith? Don't you get it? And that I'm doing better than most people attitude within the heart of a Christian is dangerous. Because that is when we start to think we're something more. We start to think that we're something more than a poor sinner who needs a savior. And we start thinking, I'm better, because, hey, I sing better hymns than those Christians over there. My children are more behaved than those people over there. I'm more humble than that guy over there. I have a better life and better things in order than those folks over there. I do better devotions. I have a more pious spouse. God blesses me more materially. I have better Bible knowledge than those folks. I go to more confessional worship services than they do, and it becomes I, 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 I. And this is nothing but pride. It's looking at ourselves for hope and comfort. It is looking at me. And this is a confusion of law and gospel. 
And this pride will eventually give way to despair. What happens when we no longer have these bragging rights that we say that God must reward us for? What happens when we come to the knowledge of sin that we're often blind to in our life? What happens if these things are stripped away from us in an instant? What becomes of our confidence before God? St. Paul uses the example of Abraham to explain this for us. Because Abraham had the great promise from God. God had promised that Abraham and his wife, Sarah, would have a son. And that son would be the first of a multitude of descendants for Abraham and Sarah, who would become a great nation of people, numbered greater than the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And from that nation of people would come a blessing for all of the earth, the promised Savior. And the scriptures say, Abraham believed in the Lord, and God credited it to him as righteousness. Abraham had faith in the promises. He believed what God had said. But problems arise for Abraham when he begins to confuse this gospel promise with his human action. Because time and again, Abraham stumbles in his faith. As he spends time in Egypt due to a famine, he lied to Pharaoh saying that Sarah was his sister. And he did this because he was afraid that Pharaoh would look at his beautiful wife and really uh, take him away, kill him, and take Sarah as his wife. And then what would happen to the gospel promise? And so what does Abraham do? He looks to the work of the promise and he brings it into his own hands. And he starts saying, Sarah is my sister. And in doing so, he puts the promise in jeopardy as Pharaoh took Sarah into his own house for a wife as a while. But God preserves Sarah's purity and Abraham's life despite Abraham's foolish work, right? And he sends sickness to the house of Pharaoh, and Abraham gets to claim Sarah back as his own bride. The same issue arises when Abraham and Sarah grow old, and they haven't seen the promise come true. They haven't had this promised child that God had been saying was going to come for them. And so Sarah and Abraham decide to take the work of God once again into their own hands. And so Sarah gives Abraham her servant, Hagar, so that they could have a child with her. And they had Ishmael as a son. But what does this do to the promise? It creates pain and confusion for Abraham when God says, this child is not the child of promise. Drive off the slave woman and her son. It creates uncertainty. It creates uh, a sense of bragging rights and pride, saying, I did this thing for God. When really it is only symbolic of Abraham's own foolish and sinful blindness. You see, every time Abraham thought that the promises were dependent on him, what happens? He messes things up. He brought potential doubt and uncertainty to the promises of God because he put that and made that contingent on his own human efforts. And it's only when there was no other possible way for Abraham and Sarah to have a son than divine action than that the promise fully received and was understood. It's when Abraham was 100 years old, when Sarah was 90 years old, you see, it all had to rest on God. God does not make his promises contingent on human decision, human action, human thought. But they're fully dependent on who he is, what he does, what he has promised to do. 
Everything Abraham did to make this promise happen fell short. He failed. And it failed because Abraham, like you and I, is a sinner. And Paul says that everything in creation is imprisoned under sin. The law is what imprisons it. And that's why we can only hope in the promise. We can only look to the promise as the thing that sets us free. Because the gospel promise of the forgiveness of sins is what frees us from the prison of sin. The law bolts the door closed. It's tight. We can't burst it open. We can't break out of it. And the gospel swings those gates open. And we're free. And St. Paul wants us to see this point, because there are many who thought at the time of Paul that the promises of God were dependent on being part of Israel. See, the Jews, they were the living descendants of Abraham, and they believed that it was necessary to adhere to the Jewish laws of the Old Covenant to take part in the promises of God. See, they said, you must be circumcised to be part of the Christian church. You must adhere to the rituals and the practices at the temple. To be part of the Christian church. You must maintain the diet of the Christians to be part of the Christian church. And St. Paul says, no. They believed that righteous, the righteous seed of Abraham was the Jews. They believed that they were the one who were the righteousness of God embodied on the face of the earth. Their righteousness was based on the Jewish law, the law given in the Old Testament. But Paul says, no, it's not the righteous seeds as if it was the entire nation of the people, but it was the righteous seed, singular. The righteous descendant of Abraham is not the Jews because they trespassed against the law of God. They did not keep that law perfectly, but the law increased their transgressions against God because it pointed out their sin. And they were imprisoned to sin and death under the law. But there was one who did keep this law, there was one of the Jews, there was one of the descendants of Abraham who did fulfill all righteousness, and this one was that promised righteous seed of God. It was Jesus. It's all about Jesus. You see, he was the one who would be a blessing to all the earth. Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, the righteous descendant of Abraham, that long-promised Savior that we all hope for and live under. This one is the one on which all the promises of God depend. All the promises are looking forward to him. All of the promises are firmly rooted in him. All the work belongs to him. The work of saving, the work of giving eternal life, the work of making sinners righteous and holy in the sight of God, the work of freeing us from the condemnation of the law. The work belongs to Jesus and Jesus alone. And Jesus promises all of this, saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so Jesus does this work perfectly. He's born as that perfect descendant of Abraham. He lives humbly before God, his Father. The law does not increase his transgressions because he never breaks it. He has no transgression. He has no sin. There's no sin, no deceit. No rebellion, no failure found in him. He keeps God's law perfectly on our behalf, and he takes all of our sins and he bears them upon himself. And he dies. He dies for the sins of the world. He suffers the divine judgment marked exclusively for sinners like you and me. And all the promises of God rest on that one reality, 
that Jesus, the Son of God, dies for sinners. And our participation in the kingdom of God rests solely on that. Our life, our righteousness, our comfort, our hope, it all relies on nothing less than that Jesus died for me. For me. That means you. The mercy of God is what saves us. It's all about what God has done. It's all about what God has spoken and promised. And with his promises, we are freed from our captivity under the law of God. As Paul teaches us, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And so our hope as Christians cannot depend on us. It cannot pretend, we cannot begin to pretend that we take part in any of the work of our own salvation. It all belongs fully to God. The law of God is good, and it teaches us love. The law of God is good. It guides us in obedience and God-pleasing life and behavior. And these are wonderful things, but we are not saved by our love and obedience to God. Because as we look at the law, it also condemns our actions. It reveals the sin in our hearts. It shows our weakness and our failure. The works of the law can't save us, but we're saved by Jesus. He is the promised Savior. And he was born under the law so that he might redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. God does not, or God does attach the promise to the work of Jesus. God attaches that promise to the work of Jesus. He promises life and salvation is worked out by Christ alone. And he attaches that work of Jesus to certain things that we do as the people of God in church. And so some people will say, hey, you Lutherans, you believe in salvation by works. Because look, look, you believe that baptism saves your babies. You believe that you have forgiveness of sins when you go up and eat the cracker. You Lutherans are all about salvation by works. We believe that baptism saves. We believe that the Lord's Supper forgives sins. And to those who do not understand, they would say that these are works that belong to us. And they would say that your baptism, your communion, these are, these are salvation by works. You are denying grace by faith alone. But we understand what these things are. We understand that these are not our human works. When we come up and wash our children in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, when we come up to receive the body and blood of our Lord, that is not your work. That is Jesus' work done for you. And he has bind, bound his promises in his word so that we can have assurance outside of ourselves as we live as the people of God that he is at work for us even here and now. These are things that God has promised these are works of God's promise. Jesus says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. That's a promise. That's not your work. 
Jesus attaches the promise of salvation to baptism. And since it has the promise of salvation, baptism is not a human work. It's what God does. It's a gift from God. It's not a law that must be followed, but it is a promise that is received by faith. The same thing goes for the Lord's Supper. We're not keeping a law of God when we come up to receive the body and blood of Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. We are receiving a work of God's promise, the promise of forgiveness of sins that is a sacrament. That sacrament means that the Lord's Supper can only be a work of his promise. I cannot make the bread and wine into the body and blood, nor can you. And I cannot make the bread and wine forgive your sins, and neither can you. But God has promised, as he says, this is given for you for the forgiveness of your sins. And so in these things, we can say, and even along with those things, we can say the same about preaching, we can say the same about absolution. We can say the same thing that anything in the scriptures that promises faith, grace, forgiveness, comfort, and assurance of salvation, these are works of God's promise. These are not human works of obedience for the law, but they are gifts from God according to his promises. God doesn't want us to live in doubt concerning these promises. But he seals his assurance in gifts that we participate in and that we receive as the people of God. And so when the baby is baptized, we can say God is working through his promise. When we eat and drink the Lord's Supper in faith, we can say God is doing something that is entirely mysterious and greater than we are. But that promise comes true. It's a confusion of law and gospel to say that the baptism and Lord's Supper are anything other than God's word put to work for us. They have the promises of forgiveness and life attached to them, therefore they are God's work. And so we remember that our place in the kingdom of God does not depend on anything we do. It depends on God's promise. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit. See, it depends fully on what God has promised and worked out for us. And that's what the parable of the Good Samaritan is all about. We, we heard in the gospel reading this morning that Jesus tells us about a man who was robbed, beaten, left for dead. He's helpless. He's unable to rescue himself. He has no power to save himself. Not only that, the priest and the Levite, what do they do? They pass him on by. These offices of the law do not help the beaten and the robbed man. And when the man hopes for the law to help him, what is left? He's utterly disappointed. He's left behind. The law left him for dead. The law couldn't save him. But the man was only saved when somebody unexpectedly arrives and has compassion on the poor man. The least likely helper in the time of need arrives and he binds the man's womb, he carries the man to safety, and he pays for all of his needs. It's the one that everyone thought would have left that man for dead that saves him. The Samaritan has compassion, is moved by love, and he helps. And so we remember in this parable that we're not the good Samaritan. We're not the priest. We're not the Levite. What are we? We're the beaten man. We are the one who is powerless. We are the one who is helpless. We are the one who needs saving. We are the one who needs help. And as powerless as we are, we must remember that we cannot rescue ourselves through our own effort and work. 
because such is our sinful nature, it leaves us dead and dying. We could never do enough to atone for our sins. We could never discipline ourselves well enough to stop sinning. We cannot overcome the things that are killing us. We must simply trust in the one who stoops down and helps us in our wretched state. We must simply trust in the promise that God has sent Christ as our Savior. We must learn to deny that there is any good in us that makes us worthy of the salvation that we have because we are not worthy. We have no power. We cannot measure up to the righteousness of God. And that is a good thing to know because the gift, the work of the gospel, the promise of God's love, that's more incredible. That is more wonderful. That is more hopeless. It's when we who are powerless receive what God has to give and we receive it purely from his gracious hand that we see and know joy. I would rather have the pure grace of Christ than be able to boast in anything I've ever done in my entire life. If it is from me, I know it will fall short. If it is from me, I know it will fail eventually. But if it's from Christ, it will not fail. And this serves us well. It means that we can have confidence in our salvation. It's not built on something as weak as our human will and our human action. But our salvation rests entirely on what God has promised us in Jesus. In this, there is comfort. There is peace that surpasses all understanding. When you feel like a weak Christian, when you feel like you stand under the weight of your sin, when you see nothing but your own shortcomings and your own failures, you can still know that you are saved. When your heart is heavy with grief and sorrow, you can know that the promises of God have not failed. When you are pierced by God's word of law and alarmed by your sins, you can know that the promises of forgiveness and life in Jesus precede that word of law. Because God is continually acting on your, on your behalf for the sake of his promise. He doesn't break his promise. And that promise is that the gospel gives you life. Structure and build your life upon God's law. Allow that to orientate your life. Allow God's law to teach you how to love. Allow God's law to teach you obedience. But don't build your hope on it. Place all your hope, all your comfort, all your assurance in what Jesus has done for you. Let all of the things that you are certain over, let all of the things that you would boast about, let all the things that give you eternal significant joy, let all the things that comfort you be the promises that God has said will happen in spite of you. Let them be the promises that God has delivered you and offered to you through the work of Jesus Christ alone because that is your assurance. That is your hope and that is your salvation. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, help us to grow in your word of promise so that we never confuse your law and your gospel. Help us to desire to grow in love and obedience according to your law. And help us to never put confidence and hope for salvation in anything other than the work of Christ that's done on our behalf. And in this, fill our lives with good purpose and endearing hope. In the name of Jesus, amen.
Now may the peace of God that surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and your minds in the true faith to life everlasting. In the name of Jesus, amen.